Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. I just want to underscore that the comments from the Iranian government are an obscenity because the notion that Iran has been a spectator in this crisis is an outrageous lie because the Iranian government has sponsored, has financed, we have considerable credible reporting to suggest that they played an operational role in planning uh, this atrocity. Well, that was Rehan Salon, the president of the Manhattan Institute on this week, the big Sunday talk fest on ABC. Sean Spear, welcome to the roundtable. Uh, Rehan is our special guest today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about him and why you wanted him on the program? Yeah, well, it's great to be in conversation with you. And I'm glad to have uh, Rehan with us. Uh, Rehan not only leads the Manhattan Institute, as you mentioned, a, a big uh, public policy think tank uh, in New York City, um, but he's also one of the most kind of interesting and curious thinkers that I know about matters of public policy and current affairs. And he also happens to be a big Canada file. Uh, I'm always uh, shocked talking to Rehan about his knowledge of writing level uh, politics and, and issues. And so it's, it's uh, great to have him here with us today. Well, Rehan, welcome to the Hub Roundtable. This is a profound honor. I am a huge, huge fan of the Roundtable. Uh, this truly is my favorite podcast. And of course, we have some terrific podcasts, the Manhattan Institute, which I love, and I recommend that you all listen to. But apart from that, uh, it really is a, a must listen for me. Uh, and uh, it's really a thrill to be here with you. Rahan, I want to start with you just on a question about the United States this last week and how the country politically, how Americans themselves are reacting to the events unfolding in Israel and Gaza. I have a sense that there's maybe a tale of two cities here, um, something different in the United States vis-a-vis -vis Canada, but let's hear it from you. You're right there in your New York City. Tell us what's happening. Well, that's very well said. There is one response from call it political officialdom, when you're looking at mainstream Republicans, mainstream Democrats, there has been an overwhelming expression of solidarity. There are some voices on the political fringe, uh, on the more uh, far left end of the Democratic coalition, for example, uh, folks who've been critical of the US relationship with Israel, uh, who've been largely silent. That is to say, when you think about the squad, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Jamal Bowman, uh, their allies uh, in Congress. Uh, these are folks who have, in some cases, been quite sharp in their criticisms of Israel. They have been uh, somewhat more muted. Um, there are exceptions to that, to be sure. Uh, what's really been striking and egregious is what you see on the street and in the campuses particularly elite campuses, which in our country, um, for our sins, uh, exert a very disproportionate weight in the wider culture. 
And uh, what you've seen is something that seems more than just the usual um, fashionable extremism. Uh, you saw first an immediate response in the wake of the Hamas massacre, uh, which was seeming to offer a kind of both sidesism perspective. But then you also had some who were outright saying that uh, the atrocity, you know, what really amounted to a pogrom, uh, was the fault of Israel somehow, trying to justify it. Uh, and it was really quite obscene. Uh, and it was something that, um, you know, I, there's a great many people, a great many um, folks within those institutions, but also alumni, uh, philanthropists who've been deeply engaged in these institutions, who saw this and thought to themselves, there is some very deep intellectual rot uh, going on uh, where these sentiments uh, seem to be so widespread, um, you know, more than just tolerated. Uh, and you saw university presidents falling all over themselves, uh, just issuing equivocal statements, then uh, issuing another slightly less equivocal statement, <laughs> and again and again, endlessly. Um, it, it's been a very strange thing. Um, and then, of course, you know, you have street protests in cities around the country, including cities with large uh, Jewish communities uh, that have created a real sense of unease. So um, there's certainly a lot to be concerned about. Some things to find heartening, including that official response I'd mentioned, uh, but then some things that are are certainly disquieting. We've observed similar dynamics in Canada. Um, I want to ask you, Raihan, about the American right in particular. Um We've observed over the past several months um, that American support for Ukraine has been the subject of considerable debate on the American right, and not merely on the fringe. There are leading voices, uh, leading conservative voices in Congress who are, uh, if not outright opposed to American support, then certainly um, highly critical on the margins. My sense, however, is that uh, support for Israel in the, in the aftermath of these attacks isn't really the subject of, of much intra-debate uh, within American conservatism. Is that is that your sense as well? And if so, what do you think explains the, the different treatment um, between support for Israel in the, in the event of, of, a, of an attack and, um, and Ukraine uh, with respect to Russia's invasion? The short answer is yes, there's absolutely a difference in how Ukraine and Israel are perceived. Uh, there are many reasons for that, one of which is that Zionism in American political consciousness is very deep-rooted, and it is not uh, simply a phenomenon of Jewish communal solidarity, um, Jewish pride uh, in the state of Israel and investment in its survival and success. There is a long-standing tradition of Christian Zionism that has become a really deep part of American political culture. Now, that's true across the board, but it's especially true in American conservatism. This, I should note, was not inevitable. Uh, there was a time uh, in an earlier phase of the American conservative movement where that was less true. Uh, and of course, um, there is this perception, this reality, that when you look at an older generation of practitioners of realpolitik, um, they were less invested uh, in the U.S. partnership with Israel, the U.S. relationship with Israel. But I'd say that certainly um, since um, the 1970s, uh, when you're looking at the conservative movement, not just center-right politics writ large, uh, there has been a deep connection uh, to Israel. Um, I'll also say that when you're talking about the right and the so-called new right, uh, when you're looking at these edgier elements uh, in the center-right coalition, 
um, even there, uh, you know, you do have some fringe voices, and I mean fringe of fringe voices uh, that flirt with anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, you know, that does exist. But it's a pretty marginal tendency in part because when you look at the new right and this idea of national identity and national self-assertion, there's a way in which Zionism and the state of Israel is seen as a paradigm case. Uh, you know, this is a people that uh, is embracing the cause of self-defense and self-help, uh, a people that is, uh, you know, demonized globally uh, by virtue of its willingness uh, to defend itself uh, proudly and forthrightly and to celebrate um, its heritage, its history. So there is a deep way in which that theme of Jewish sovereignty um, resonates, rhymes with larger arguments, um, larger historical debates that, you know, of course, you see in Canada uh, regarding how to think about this experience of um, uh, you know, European settlement. Um, you see shades of that in the United States and many other societies as well. Uh, when you talk about settler colonialism, uh, Rudyard made a brilliant point on a recent episode uh, of the Roundtable, which is that if you take this notion of settler colonialism seriously, uh, you'd have to carefully and patiently explain to me why it only applies uh, in the case of communities in the south of Israel and doesn't apply to communities in the 905 that themselves were also communities built uh, on, you know, suppose, you know, you know, just on this kind of same, um, you know, uh, settler state thesis. Uh, and I think that that's something that has um, stiffened the spines of a lot of folks on the right in the United States. Great insights, Ryan. Let's talk a little bit about the official response. You mentioned it in your first answer, but I think it is part of the compare and contrast of Canada and the United States at this moment. Joe Biden coming out now with really two very forceful uh, speeches in support of Israel, and more important than just speeches, um, action. You've got significant uh, troop deployments into the Mediterranean and uh, Jordan surrounding Israel, troops, American troops potentially on the ground providing logistical and other assistance in the weeks to come. You have a major funding request by the president in front of Congress. And then I contrast that to the end of the week here in our House of Commons, statements by our foreign minister and by our prime minister that are really kind of struggling, for instance, with what we might consider at the roundtable here, pretty much basic uh, requirements of, of leadership that one would expect, which would be generally thinking that if the president of the United States indicates that uh, he has seen intelligence, which uh, suggests strongly that the hospital bomb this week was done uh, by Hamas uh, in error, obviously, but nonetheless, not by an Israeli airstrike, but somehow our political leaders have problems even getting to that level of perspicacity. So what's going on here? Why is there this contrast? And why is, do you think Joe Biden has been so forceful on this? Well, there are so many possibilities. One is simply that the savagery the brutality of this attack represented a kind of catastrophic success on the part of Hamas. There is an ongoing debate uh, about the uh, just understanding quite how this attack came together and exactly what it is Hamas was thinking was the likely result. Uh, but you know, one um, you know thesis that I find compelling is that in a sense uh, Hamas believed this idea that the fortifications were really impregnable, that the sensor uh, these sensor arrays were really, you know, quite formidable and impressive, and that uh, therefore there was a, a kind of collapse of discipline. But but anyway, part of the 
response is that just the outrageous nature of these crimes was something that necessitated uh, a forceful response. Um, another thing that I'll just note is that the U.S. military uh, is doing some extraordinary things that have never really been done. For example, uh, these cruise missiles that were fired by Houthi rebels, uh, of course, in connivance with the Iranians, uh, you know, they were shot down by the United States uh, in defense uh, of Israel. That is really interesting. There's a kind of, um, you know, though, of course, the U.S. and Israel are allies, there has at times been this kind of arm's length approach, uh, this way in which, well, we want to calm things down, we want to contain um, the violence, etc. Uh, but that is a really interesting big break that is a very consequential one. And it does seem like the president, uh, it does seem as though the administration is squarely behind that. Now, there's another set of issues um, regarding the U.S. relationship with Iran and uh basically uh, the regional balance of power, where I think that there's a reasonable case to be made that the Biden administration, building on the legacy of the Obama administration, has made some fundamental errors, uh, strategic errors, one could argue moral errors, vis-a-vis uh, -vis how to treat the Iranian state. Uh, you know, that's a separate debate. And in a way, it's not a debate the Biden administration wants to have right now, but partly because of the chaos uh, among Republicans in the House of Representatives, it's not really a debate that you have anyone uh, shining a light on, period. Uh, but for now, I think that there's no question that the Biden administration has been very um, uh, committed uh, to Israel and its defense. Uh, there could be some quibbles at the margins, but I gather that the Israeli government is uh, encouraged and assured by that. It's also true that this is a very frightening situation. Uh, Israel's vulnerability uh, Israel is more vulnerable than it has been uh, since 1973. Uh, you have targets, you have nuclear power plants, you have any number of targets uh, that could be in the crosshairs. We just really don't know exactly how this is going to play out. There could be uh, a reasonable outcome in which Israel establishes uh, its uh, dominance on the battlefield. And uh, then you know things fall into place, the Saudis recognize that, and then we come to a new modus vivendi. But there could also be a case in which Israel experiences um, uh, just uh, uh, overwhelming civilian deaths and uh, and what have you, uh, if Iran really decides to take the gloves off. So it's a very sensitive and frightening situation right now. And I think Americans across the political spectrum uh, recognize that. Uh, Ryan, you and your colleagues at the Manhattan Institute have done a lot of rigorous uh, thinking on intellectual and cultural trends on the what you might describe as the new left. I think one thing that listeners are struggling to understand is the the role the so-called oppressor oppressed frame has uh, has played in the response not just uh, from students and left-wing academics and so on, but even mainstream media outlets and uh, center-left politicians. Can you just elaborate a bit on this notion of oppressed and oppressor and, and the extent to which that's influenced the way people are thinking and talking about um, the, these developments over the past couple of weeks? 
This is a set of intellectual currents that the hub has been covering really adroitly and thoughtfully in the Canadian context. It's something that seems really global. Uh, these critical theories, uh, these uh, notions of social and racial justice that seem benign on the surface, but that do in effect create this hierarchy of victims and victimizers that create ideas of collective guilt uh, that uh, you certainly see in the discourse around, um, you know, for example, um, indigenous relations in Canada, Australia, elsewhere uh, in the United States, that's really pervaded how we understand race relations in a way that's been really, really poisonous. And one could argue, and, and I certainly see parallels, that this talk of decolonization, what it means to be a decolonizer, uh, we had spoken earlier on about this notion of the settler society and the supposed illegitimacy of the settler society. These are all ideas that are intimately connected. And these are ideas that interact in complex ways. Because for example, you know, Israel is, like many modern market democracies, a multi-ethnic society. It is a society that has a large non-Jewish uh, population, uh, Arabic-speaking population, uh, where the Israeli state in, fits and starts, and I think in some respects quite successfully, has sought to integrate it into the economic uh, and civic mainstream. Um, you do have uh, Arab uh, members of the Knesset, uh, who are real power players, who've taken part in coalition governments. This is, by the way, not something that you see uh, in Arab states uh, that uh, are, of course, not multi-party democracies in the same way, but we'll bracket that. Uh, but Israel is itself a society that has you know, a large population, a working class, lower middle class population with roots in the Arab world. Um, you know, this is something that is true of so many different societies, and figuring out how to build successful multi-ethnic societies is the challenge of the 21st century. Uh, I would argue that uh, Canada, the United States, have actually done an awfully good job of it, but you do have this uh, brand of cultural Marxism, and I hate to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but it is this uh, set of ideas that is antinomian, uh, that is deeply corrosive, that you know, claims to be about creating a more equitable multi-ethnic society, uh, but in fact, I would argue, is very corrosive of that vitally important goal. And I think that um, some of what we've seen in response to uh, the massacre uh, in the south of Israel uh, is actually almost this effort of folks who embrace this critical theory perspective to goad and polarize uh, and intensify conflicts around ethnic and racial lines. And that's what is so utterly frightening, um, you know, especially for Jewish communities, but of course for all communities. I grew up in New York City um, at a time when uh, you had riots in Crown Heights. Uh, you had real live uh, ethnic conflict, um, including uh, anti-Semitic violence. And I also saw what it looked like to have civil order and peace, to move away from that, while continuing to be a vibrantly diverse society. And I think that you know what I saw in New York City in the 80s as a kid, uh, this is now a near universal condition when it comes to modern market democracies. Uh, you see it in the riots and banlieues outside of Paris. Uh, you see it in the sense of intimidation that people feel when you have these big you know, defiantly pro-Hamas rallies, uh, whether it's a Nathan Phillips Square or Times Square, uh, when you see public officials uh, in the West telling Jewish communities, we cannot guarantee your safety. That is, in my view, an obscenity. And it's something that has an intellectual root. Uh, there are ideas uh, that seek to justify this. And uh, these are the ideas that uh, I think you at The Hub are doing such a brilliant job of identifying, understanding, examining in a thoughtful and critical way so that we are prepared to build successful multi-ethnic societies.
Yeah, it's something Sean and I have been talking about going deeper on in the weeks to come and would love listener, you know, feedback and advice on this. But I, I think it's it's more than just on university campuses, guys. I think it's in our departments of foreign affairs, at least here in Canada, it's a whole generation that have been trained in this critical race theory. It's throughout broad swaths of newsrooms across North America, where a generation of people have come into these roles with a frame that is constructed around the dialectic of oppressed and oppressor. And there is a, a relentless, at least for this cohort, a relentless sense of pressure to identify an ally with the supposed oppressed against the oppressor. And this becomes the, again, the moral frame of everything and anything. And it's very hard for people to think about a conflict in the context of international law, um, international precedent, and a, a kind of historic view of, let's say, the simple differences between wars of necessity and wars of choice. Israel is definitely fighting the former and not the latter. I could go on and on and on, guys, but I think there's something here. And in a sense, this is the kind of first woke war that we are experiencing in real time as a live debate, unfortunately, within broad swaths. I would add the labor movement in Canada too, to academia, uh, the media, and portions of our bureaucracy. I don't know what you think about that, Sean, whether I'm overreaching here, but I, I have a feeling that this is different somehow. Yeah, I preview uh, an essay that Rudyard and I have co-authored that will run in tomorrow's Saturday newsletter that in part tries to empathize and understand the, the kind of schizophrenic response from the Trudeau government over the past couple of weeks. It it was more equivocal in the immediate aftermath of the of the attacks than we would have liked. It then sort of stiffened its spine, including some strong words from the prime minister alongside uh, official opposition leader Pierre Polyev at events with the Jewish community in Ottawa. And as Rudyard says, it ends this week in the untenable position of effectively um, treating in equal terms the claims of Hamas about the explosion at this, at this hospital and the intelligence of the American president. And one can speculate about what's behind that. Maybe it's motivated to an extent by politics. Maybe it's motivated by um, caucus dynamics that's been reported by the Global Mail. But I wouldn't underestimate, and this is where I think both of you have, have made really important points here, the intellectual root behind this. And it's the it's the um, the extent to which these critical theories have come to permeate um, major institutions and um, and cause um, um, people in those institutions to um, to look through everything, including, as you say, Rudyard, for the first time, a major global conflict uh, uh, through this lens. Rehan, let's give you the last word on this. And we, we know you've got a jet for uh, an important appointment, but give us your sense. In the United States, is this is, are you similarly seeing this type of dynamic at play? Is there, maybe there's something else going on, maybe just old muscle memory around uh, the Palestinian cause and how this has been, you know, a, uh, yeah, the, a bet noir for large segments of the US voting public for the last number of decades. It is very um, frightening to contemplate how this all might play out. 
the immediate political response has, in some respects, in important respects, been heartening. However, um, Sean asked me earlier on about Ukraine, and part of what you saw happen in Ukraine is that there was an immediate outpouring of support and solidarity, something that has diminished over time uh, as the war has ground on and as it's become clear that there's not going to be some magical spring offensive that's going to uh, uh, resolve everything to our satisfaction. Uh, in the case of Israel, for all the reasons I mentioned earlier, I do think that there is, a, in a sense, a deeper, more durable connection. But also, there is real fear about the prospect of an enmeshment in a land war uh, in the Middle East, uh, the United States having experienced uh, this uh, collective trauma uh, of the war in Iraq. Uh, and so I think that right now there is this incredibly robust support. I think that support will remain robust. And I do think that it is for better, for worse, it's just fundamentally different from the Ukraine situation. I'm sure uh, the Ukrainians lament this in some respects. Uh, but uh, which is to say that the support is so much deeper here. But again, this could get ugly. And as it gets ugly, uh, one would hope that the country remains broadly united on this. Um, when it comes to the kind of ideological virus that you've seen emerge um, in elite academia, media, but also on the streets uh, in some communities, I do think that there's been this robust civil society response where there are a lot of philanthropists who've in many cases, when they've been seeing these ideological trends, uh, seeing um, the ways in which toxic ideas have been indulged, uh, curried favor with, uh, I think that there are a lot of people who've actually put their, uh, put their feet down in a way that I think is really encouraging, frankly. A lot of people have said enough is enough. Uh, that they're going to draw a line here. And you have seen some modest institutional response in response to that. So while there are no silver linings in a situation like this, uh, I have been encouraged to see some people decide that uh, they need to take some action, whether it's withdrawing donations, whether it's taking a, a really strong public stand uh, to make a distinction between right and wrong here. Uh, and I hope that we see more of that kind of courage uh, and at the risk of flattering you all too much, uh, I really do think that having a publication like yours uh, that is global in scope, uh, that is taking ideas seriously, um, you know, you guys are doing something that is really a treasure for the whole English-speaking world, uh, and I'm just hugely grateful to you for it. Rehan, thank you again so much uh, for coming on the program. Thank you, guys. Sign up for The Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab The Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. Well, Sean, a lot to unpack there. I love um, getting that uh, perspective because there are, you know, the opportunities to compare and contrast what's happened in the United States and Canada versus the last week. But I want to go back to your article that you've got coming out uh, tomorrow. Maybe you could just give listeners a little more context. You've put some 
a lot of time and effort into this. And again, it builds on kind of, I don't know, I think a genuine feeling, at least on my part, Sean, as your kind of publisher, editor in chief, so to speak, uh, defers obviously to Stuart, your editor at large, but this feeling, I, I sense that the hub can lead on something here, that there's an argument that isn't really being made with, I think, the force and the seriousness that it should be in the rest of the media. What is that argument? Yeah, I think we've been um, active on uh, on these issues ever since we we woke up a couple of Saturdays and morning mornings ago um, to the horrific news of these terrorist attacks. And um, I don't know about you, Rudyard, but I've gotten some questions from regular readers um, a, a, about our editorial position. There's a sense that we've been a bit sharper and had a, a, a clearer point of view than we, we sometimes do, where, of course, we have a kind of ecumenical editorial position. We have a lot of different diverse voices and diverse perspectives. But on, on this issue, you know, I think of uh, an article that I published uh, soon after the attacks, uh, a really important one that you wrote this week uh, on, um, on the tendency towards moral equivocation. We've had David Frum, we've had Janice Gostein, we've had Brett Stevens, the list goes on. And what we try to do in, in, in the essay that'll run tomorrow morning is to answer those questions. And I think um, for me, and I think for, for you, um, a, a big motivation here uh, is that uh, Israel represents in a lot of ways um, a, a set of ideas and values that, that really animate the hub, a, a commitment to rule of law, democratic institutions, a market economy, pluralism and so on and so uh, of course you know are we shouldn't be unthinking or uncritical when it comes to israel and 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 i'd go even further to say um one can agree with or or disagree with or support or oppose the, the current israeli government in general or even with respect to its policy vis-a-vis -vis gaza um but i, I think when you're uh, confronted with a, a conflict between a, a fellow member of uh, the community of liberal democratic nations and a, a terrorist organization supported by a state sponsor of terror, I think the presumption of trust ought to tilt in the former direction. And I think one of the things that's bothered you and me over the past uh, week to 10 days is that presumption of trust seems to be perverted in the opposite direction. Uh, and you know, I think one of the enlightening parts of the conversation with Rehan was to sort of speculate on what what explains um, that perversion in the mainstream media, certainly academia. You mentioned labor unions, and I would say, regrettably, even in some parts of our of our politics. Um, and so that's what uh, we'll put to readers tomorrow, and and would welcome their their feedback because these issues aren't going away. You know, as we conclude in the in the essay. Um, uh, it's going to be with us for the coming weeks and months, and the hub is going to remain focused on them because they they matter a great deal, not just um, for Canada as a matter of geopolitics and strategy and all the rest, um, because there's something bigger at stake here. There's something almost civilizational in my mind. Uh, well put. I was uh, communicating earlier today with Malcolm Jolly, our uh, wine columnist. He's actually got a, another fun column for you today for something a little bit lighter and boy i think we could all use a drink by the end of this week but in all seriousness malcolm i made a good point you know that 
he, he phrased it as the littoral, like the, the line. We're looking across these two littorals, one between southern Israel and Gaza, the other across the Dnieper River from Western free democratic Ukraine into Putin's conquered lands. And that's, you know, it's a chilling way to think about it, that there are these two kind of um, fault lines that have eruptured uh, in the, in our, in our world at this moment. Uh, and we are staring across them and, it is, it is a bit of an abyss on the other side of both of those littoral lines, the Dnieper River and the Green Line separating Israel's sovereign UN-recognized boundaries border from, from Gaza. And look, I just hope that this is morally clarifying for everybody. I mean, this is and as I wrote earlier this week, it's just it just seems bizarre to engage at this very moment with that sharp littoral running through our consciousness in Ukraine and Israel in, you know, moral equivalencies. Um, and, you know, Rehan mentioned this, maybe something we should write about in the next week or so, why this very different reaction on the progressive left to the war in Ukraine, the immediate and ubiquitous, you know, attaching of Ukrainian flags to people's Twitter bio handles. You don't see people doing that with the Israeli flag, do you? And I'm just not sure in my mind, I just don't see a lot of difference. It's to me, it's the same perspective across the Dnieper River right now that I see if I look and think in my mind's eye from Southern democratic, free, peace-loving Israel into the terrorist authoritarian nightmare that is Gaza City. Yeah, I I, I did another podcast uh, uh, every once in a while. I I I'm in my I'm guilty of infidelity to to the Hub podcast. I was a guest on another podcast this week, and one of the things I said, Rudyard, was the extent to which I have had some success as a public policy analyst. I think it's because I'm reasonably good at empathy. Um, you know, that is to say, I think I can put myself in the shoes of the other side um, and understand at least where they're coming from. And the, the truth is, of course, a lot of the public policy debates we have tend to be about um, balancing competing priorities, equality and freedom, order and liberty, uh, you, you know, dynamism and stability. And, and really what you're doing is kind of twisting the dials to find a balance and compromise. Um, but I must say, over the past couple of weeks, I've had a, a really hard time um, empathizing with those who seek to rationalize, justify, and even celebrate um, these horrific attacks, for which we are only learning more and more um, as the days go by. And, um, you know, it's funny, Rudyard, is I could, I could understand if people, if the reaction was that people were kind of losing their heads, you know, that is to say they were not thinking critically about the, the risks of certain responses and actions and, and so on. I mean, at, at times I've worried about that in my, for myself, you know, that I, I don't want to become so overwhelmed by the horrific images and stories that I, I, I substitute my, my heart for my head. But that's not what we're seeing from a lot of quarters, right? It's, it's in fact, 
precisely the opposite. And um, understanding the the kind of psychology of that is 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 been is something that I I've I've struggled with in the past couple of days. And and I would just say, and I put it to you. Um, we're seeing this kind of play out in our politics. I, I mentioned in the in the conversation with with Raihan, the, the Trudeau government uh, at different times over the past two weeks has been uh, uh, expressed full throated support uh, for Israel, um, but yet it ends this week in this really bizarre position where the Minister of Foreign Affairs of, of a G seven country and I think the dean of the the G seven in uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. Uh, are increasingly marginalized when it comes to uh, rendering judgment on what was behind uh, this explosion at at the the Gazan hospital. Like, ooh, I, there, I think there is a tendency to attribute it to politics, and no doubt that's a, a has a big kind of explanatory power here. But I do wonder how much of it is caught up in the the psychology that we were talking about with Raihan. How much has the liberal government, particularly amongst its uh, most committed kind of progressive voices succumb uh, to some of these kind of false binaries when um, when thinking and talking about these issues. Yeah, something I'm certainly going to think about more, this whole idea of, you know, different thought categories. And, you know, I think we all have to realize that there's this wonderful phrase, um, the corporeescence of subjects, which means that basically everybody thinks the same. Well, actually, in some ways that might be the biggest myth of all. Maybe that there, at times there are people around you, close to you, maybe in your life who are thinking about things in just such radically different ways. And, and then in a crisis, an event like this comes along and it just, it's like a, a shock to the system and suddenly you see how people you know uh people that maybe you considered fellow intellectual travelers or others just have a completely different view it's as if they're looking out onto a different landscape than yes. the one that you see and it's it's deeply it's disconcerting it's dislocating it's jarring and I do think part of it does come down to this fundamental, and it's somewhat generational. I mean, again, I keep talking about my age on this show, but I'm, you know, going on 53. I'm past the half century mark. You know, the university that I went to at U of T, whatever it is, 30 odd years ago, very different than today. And I just, I think we have to realize that there's been, for some people, an embedded shift in their perspectives brought on by years of critical theory and its associated categorization of the world into oppressed and oppressor, colonized and colonizer, you know, resistor and collaborator. Um, it's a whole new set of binaries that I think, um, yeah, it, it's just hard for me to put my head in into that world to understand it, but I certainly see, I see the trailings of it yes. through the media, through these tweets that you see from, you know, coming out of organized labor and elsewhere. And you just think to yourself, what the heck, where does this come from? Well, we know. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say two things in response. One, um, the argument has been for a long time that yes, of course the universities are, um, 
are a bit crazy, but don't worry as these people graduate and right. they, en they enter professional life and so on, they sort of grow out of these yeah. kind of radical ideas. But what happens if the opposite is happening? They aren't growing out of them. In fact, they're bringing them to the workplace. They're bringing them to their participation in civil society, and they're transforming the institutions that they now inhabit. In other words, um, it is so much of modern life has, has become the kind of equivalent of a sociology seminar. Um, and we're seeing that. I, I love the phrase you used with Rehan, the first woke war. I think that's an idea that we ought to um, think a bit more at the hub in the coming days. The, the, the second thing I would say, though, um, is I wonder if the treatment of the uh, hospital explosion story um, helps to illuminate what we're talking about for listeners. If you think about it, um, one of the reasons I there was such a, a strong reaction to the immediate the immediacy of the attacks uh, was because uh, you just get the sense that the people were kind of overwhelmed temporarily out of this framework, right? Um, and so even though their their typical way of thinking of these things is as Israel as the oppressor and the Palestinian people as the oppressed, they had to, they were jarred out of it briefly. Um, but the, the initial reports of the hospital explosion enabled them to kind of reset, to return to their conventional binary. Um, and then even as evidence began to mount that that, that was wrong, um, they, they, couldn't, they, couldn't, they couldn't confront the facts because it was so destabilizing for them as they had been destabilized in the aftermath of the attacks. I, I would just say this, um, and I defer to you in the sense that you've been kind of thinking about global issues and defense and security far more than me, but this is the beginning, right, of something. This isn't the end. And we have struggled collectively to manage these first two weeks. I have a hard time, Rudyard, thinking about what this is going to look like a month from now, three months, six months from now, uh, when we start to have uh, mounting evidence of, of, of casualties, um, which is bound to come, like you could see a world where cities like Montreal and Toronto are, I don't want to sound hyperbolic or alarming, but like on fire um, with you know, potential of violence um, and, and so on. And so I don't know. Um, I don't want to end uh, this week in a negative place, but I'm a bit worried actually about where things are going. And I do think there's a kind of need more than ever for some leadership here uh, um, uh, for moral clarity. And uh, I, I look forward to feedback to the essay that we're going to publish tomorrow because in our own little way, um, we're, we're trying to put these issues into a, a, a much needed broader context. Indeed. I think, the right use of context as opposed to how it seems to be deployed again in this endless attempt to create some equivalency between an illegal terrorist group running a brutal authoritarian statelet in the Middle East versus an ally, a democratic regime, a regime like ours, a fellow democracy that is messy, that has problems, that has had problems, which democracy hasn't. You know, I think those are the kind of I don't know, moments of moral clarity, at least that come to me that are, I think are going to help me remain anchored to a few 
kind of pole stars, North stars over the coming days and weeks and possibly months that this conflict plays itself out. And hopefully the hub can continue to be that reference point for all of us to have these discussions and to do so with some intellectual honesty and vigor. So Sean, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for bringing your friend uh, Rehan on the program too. It was great to get his perspective. I'd love to have him back on the program again. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Gronoski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.